to all of that. I'm thankful that we have this idea that uh, in the beginning of this, this passage, in verses 1 through 10, we see that there's helplessness and healing, but there's a great and sad contrast. We see this, uh, this gentleman who's sitting there, and he's lame. He's been lame since birth. He struggled. He's had to, to rely on the graces of other people to even be carried to where he could earn his living, if you want to call that earning. I assume that means that somebody carried him. Maybe it was friends. Maybe it was family members. I don't know. As we read this, I also get the sense that he is used to being overlooked as he sits there at the gate called Beautiful. What a sad and pathetic existence that had to be. He was placed in a position that he had to beg for alms. And he was placed in a place in front of a gate called Beautiful. What a contrast. I don't think that this is a throwaway phrase. I don't think this is something that, that, um, that Luke wrote down just to say, uh, you know, here he is, and, and it was a geographical thing. I don't think it was that at all. I think that it was meant to be placed there as a context. Because as we all probably are aware, that sitting there uh, in, in, in biblical times, you know, if you were crippled, if you had some sort of deformity, if you were uh, somewhat less than, if you were a beggar, you were less than a human being. And he's placed there in a gate called beautiful so what do we do with that i mean is is luke trying to be ironic is he trying to be sarcastic is he trying to be coincidental i think there's something else there but i think that we need to get a fuller picture of this first and and the first thing that we see is that in in this beggar sitting in front of the gate called beautiful is that there's sin and the power of its strength we have a picture of sin and its strength now wait a minute i we're not saying that sin causes deformities, are we? Well, theologically, I think we have to wrestle with that, and I think we have to land on the place that was this part of God's original plan. When God created everything, he called it all good. When he created mankind, it was very good. If you want to see the picture of what, Genesis, or what creation looked like, take a look at the book Genesis. And in the first opening chapter, you see that God created everything, and it wasn't just good, it was perfect. Who better to create than a perfect God? But sin was not a part of his original intent. It was not a part of his plan for us. And the, the writer of Hebrews, he tells us that sin entered the world through one man, and we call him Adam. And it was a generational problem from that point forward. It changed everything. It changed everything. It changed our relationships with each other. It changed our relationships with nature. Our health has been affected by that. The effects of sin are still being felt today. We have racism, poverty, rape, violence, pain, suffering, illnesses. All of this is a result of sin. In and of itself, those are sin, but it is a result of the original sin. And sometimes, as a result of sin, it gets per perpetuated by others, but sometimes it gets put onto others. And that's the kind of the case with this man at the gate called Beautiful. What a hopeless and hapless existence he had to have had. I mean, talk about Groundhog Day, if you've seen the movie. Same existence, day in and day out. Somebody comes along, carries you on their back or on a pallet to set you down in front of a gate called Beautiful, and, and you see people trudging by. You can't stand on your own. You can't walk on your own. You can't do anything for yourself except sit there maybe with a jar in front of you. It says alms for the poor on the front of it. 
So you sit there all day and it's maybe, maybe somebody will throw coins in your direction on their way into the temple. Maybe they don't. They probably don't. They might even snicker at you. They might even make fun of you to your face. Worse yet, maybe behind your back as they walk in because they can. So then you sit there all day, you hope to get a little bit, you get carried home, you, you dump your, your findings out in, on the bed in front of you and you count out measly little shekels here, a little shekel there. And you hope that maybe you have enough for food. Maybe you have enough to, to pay your rent this month. I don't know. So then you go to bed. You wake up, you do it all over again. No matter what you did, no matter how many coins you collected, you had no chance for a change in your life. The power of sin that you did not do kept you a slave to your lot in life. But then, light opens up a little bit. And you see, Peter and John are walking on their way into the temple. The text tells us that Peter looked him in the eye and said, look at us. I think we've all been there, right? Have we all been there? We've been driving along the road and we see somebody standing on the, on the street corner holding a cardboard sign that says, homeless vet, we'll work for food. Single mom, just lost my job. Anything will help. Or any number of combinations on the side of the road that you can imagine. Have you ever noticed that they don't make eye contact? Or maybe a little bit of a gut check here. Maybe your prayer is that they don't make eye contact. I know I've been, in, uh, been there myself. I've sat there at the stoplight hoping and praying that the next light that turns is enough for me to pass them by and not have me stop right next to them, whoever that person is. And I have this picture in my mind's eye as I read this passage. The, the beggar looks up. He's not making eye contact because he has no hope. And he's so used to being treated as a less than person. So when somebody stops, they try to make eye contact. And in fact, they talk to you as if you're a person. Well, that's different. Can you imagine the hope that, that this beggar is feeling in those moments? Can you imagine that? That you're sitting there, you're, you're, you're broken, you're beat down, you're, you're demoralized, you have no hope. And then suddenly somebody says, hey, look at me. Hope begins to build in you. You started to feel like maybe you're treated as if you are a person, not a less than person. And maybe they're going to give you something. Maybe they're going to toss some coin your way. Maybe a lot of coin because you know what? There's a lot of rich people that would walk into the temple. So you're hoping, you're hoping, and you're hoping. Will they give me something? Will I be able to eat tonight? Will I be able to pay my rent? And then the door of hope slams shut. Gold and silver we do not have. <sighs> Well, ain't that a bummer? Here I've been building for this hope. And they don't have gold and they don't have silver. What do they have? Something very, very simple yet very powerful. It's the intervention of the gospel. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. Now there must have been something in the way Peter said it because if I'm sitting there, if I'm a broke down beggar, can't do nothing for myself, if I'm hurting and if I'm crippled, if I cannot do for myself and somebody tells me to walk, you know what the first thing that comes to my mind is? Shut up, you're a jerk. I've been sitting here my whole life. I've been crippled from birth. I can't do this on my own. And you're telling me to get up and walk? Why are you being so cruel to me would be what would run through my mind. 
But it wasn't cruelty. It was the beginning of understanding what the gospel can do. It can heal. It can heal bodies. It can heal relationships. It can heal towns and cities. It can heal souls. Simply put, it can heal. So Peter reaches out, grabs a beggar by his hand, and helps him to his feet. And then the text says immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. It wasn't a progressive thing. It wasn't like, oh, well, we'll take you to the doctor and get you fixed up. It was immediate. He was healed. That reminds me that the power of Christ always results in something. And in this case, the result was that, that Peter, John, and the former beggar went on into the temple. And, it, and I get this image, um, uh, and this is going to be a little bit weird, so bear with me on this. But picture Dorothy, the tin man, the cowardly lion, and the scarecrow on their way into Oz. And you, you kind of just see them kind of skipping along. And I, just, I can see uh, Peter and John walking into the temple just saying, you know what, this is normal for us. This is what we do. But that the beggar, it talks about how he is leaping with joy. He's leaping with joy. Somebody who could not, 15 minutes before, he was on the floor, couldn't do for himself, could not stand, could not walk. And the power of the gospel changed that. And he could not contain his excitement. And who would? Who would sit there and go, shh, don't tell anybody. We're going to keep this good news to ourselves. Right? And he shared that good news with everyone. And those who used to see him sitting at the gate called Beautiful were wondering, wow, what a change. My guess is we've all seen someone who is often overlooked by society. We've seen those who we normally avoid. Maybe they look a little bit crazy. Maybe their clothes are a little bit unkempt. Maybe they don't even wear the right clothes. I mean, if you're in middle school, you are never wearing the right clothes. I can guarantee you that. Maybe, maybe you yourself, is, uh, you're, you're lame. You broke down. What are we to do when we encounter these people? I think it's entirely appropriate for us to actually see them. To see them. In this passage, we see that Peter fixed his gaze on the beggar. It's not this idea that he just looked at him. He fixed his gaze on him. He looked at him as if he were real. Oh, I get it. We all see the beggar alongside the road, and, well, we assume that they're lazy or that they're crazy, hooked on drugs. We don't want to give them anything because we know that they're either going to use it on booze or porn, right? They're not going to use it on what we think they should use it on, like food and clothing and shelter. We always assume the worst of the other. What would it take for us to see them as image bearers of Christ? The Imago Dei. At any rate, this chapter continues inside the temple, and I'm going to read from uh, chapter 3, verse 11 on. Um, While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, and I love it when Peter starts with this, by the way. When Peter, Peter starts with men of Israel, you know he's about to kind of stomp on some toes. Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if the, by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. Oh, by the way, you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. So you perpetuated what Pilate wanted to do, although Pilate wanted to let him go, and instead 
you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus' man, whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. How, how many in here like to be called ignorant? I don't, but okay. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And so here in the temple, we see that there are human and divine elements in play. Um, as often happens, the, the human and the divine kind of get mushed together. But in this case, the human elements, we see excitement. The excitement of the man, the wonderment of the witnesses. There is a sense that almost a sense of chaos. I mean, could you imagine if somebody who we knew was sitting out on the street corner day in and day out was all of a sudden in here dancing and prancing and having a great time praising God? Oh, man, to see the light in his eyes, wouldn't you sit back and go, God is great. But we also see instrumentality here. As humans, we don't heal. And this is all due respect to your, your lovely bride. We don't heal. The modern medicine that we experience today is a miracle in and of itself. And oftentimes there is even the divine healing that happens for no other reason that God chooses to do it. We see the provisions laid out for it in James chapter 5. If you are sick, call for the elders to come and they will pray for you and anoint you. We see Isaiah 53 talks about it by Jesus' Wounds, we are healed. And that comes to fruition in, 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 in um, Luke chapter 4. We are God's chosen instruments to, to convey that healing. But we also see the guilt of those that are present. They were guilty of disowning the holy and righteous one. Have you ever been disowned by somebody whom loves you? Somebody doesn't want to have a conversation with you because of just who you are. It happens. I'm always amazed when I hear the words of Peter. He clearly has not understood what it takes to lead a church into growth, right? You don't stomp on toes in churches. You just, you know, you, you, you placate people. You, you tell Mike, good job. You look sharp today, by the way, Mike. I love that combination. And Bill, you're looking good too. That's, that's how you grow a church is you make people feel good. But Peter, no. Peter speaks with boldness. And he stomps on toes. But then we also see the divine elements here. God had, prof God had prophets proclaim long ago that Christ would suffer for the sins of mankind. But the thing is, is that demonstrates God's love for mankind. Christ is currently in heaven, ruling and reigning with God the Father. We are separated only by time right now, folks. He's not present with us visibly, but we, we're still with him. And oh, by the way, this is not a new plan, as it says here. This has been the plan since times of old. So look at verse 22 and following. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. I want to stop for there for just a second. 
Were the Israelites good at listening to the prophets? Most people would say, mm, not so much, not so much. Let me say this though, are God's people great at listening to preachers? Sometimes, not all the time. So, anyone who does not listen to him, and I'm talking about the Christ, will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you, turning each of you from your wicked ways. And here we see the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough. It's not Christ plus. Christ is enough. As we wrap up chapter 3, we see Peter preaching to the public. He goes on to tell the people that of all the prophets, Jesus is one that we need to listen to. As I talked about a few weeks ago, how are we doing on understanding our Bible within the North American church? Do we read it? Do we understand? Are we paying attention maybe to the red letters of the Bible, the teachings of Jesus? Are we doing good with that? Not just understanding them, but maybe tucking them away in our heart by memorizing them so that we can obey them. It's one thing to understand them, to know them, but if you don't obey them, let me ask you this. Are you any better than a Pharisee? I mean, I'm not going to call you a brood of vipers, but if you're not listening to the words of Jesus, if you know them and you don't obey them, how are you different? For those who say Jesus was a prophet, you're correct. And in this passage, we see the idea that the soul does not just listen to him, but if the soul doesn't listen to him, it will be destroyed. So, but we have a word in here. And, and I, want to, I want to stop here for just a moment and talk about this word. It's that word wicked. When you hear that word wicked, what comes to your mind? Evil? Probably. Nasty? Probably. Vicious? Amoral? Degenerate? Depraved? Immoral? Vile? Unrighteous? Do all those words come to mind when you think of the word wicked? I mean, I'm not a walking thesaurus, but you could probably come up with a hundred others. But let me just say this, the word wicked actually from a biblical standpoint is anything that is against God's will or plan. So you might be a good person, and I mean legitimately a good person, you've never broken any of the Ten Commandments, even in your heart. But listen, if you're not within God's plan, if you're not in his will, you, you're wicked. Your ways are wicked. So if you're outside of his plan, you are steeped in your wicked ways. You might be a good person, but your ways are still wicked. So how do you turn away from the wicked ways? And it's simple this. In Romans chapter 10, verses 8, 9, and 10, we read, The word that we preach, the word of faith is, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, it's from the heart that a person believes and it's with the mouth that we confess that is our way of salvation. Let me say this, and I say this in love and grace, and, and, and Mike and I were talking in the side room over here that it is great to be here gathered amongst God's people together. So when I say this, understand that I'm not trying to chase people out, okay? But your way of salvation isn't from attending a church building. 
Your way of salvation isn't from giving 10% of your gross, by the way. Okay, I don't want you tithing on your net. I mean, because now we're going to get into some weirdness there. But it isn't from attending a Sunday school or a small group. Your salvation doesn't come from serving on the worship team. It isn't from hearing me preach or pastor you. To turn from your wicked ways means we turn towards godly ideals. And that begins with acknowledging that Christ is our Lord. Recognizing that he raised God from the dead, or raised from Jesus from the dead. So let me transition here for a moment. As COVID has made it harder for us to gather together, do we feel as if we're missing something valuable and valid in our lives? Have we put so much emphasis on our large group gatherings that we feel as if we don't do them, that we are no longer able to worship God? I might suggest that maybe instead of worshiping God, you've been worshiping a structure. Frameworks are good. Don't mishear me. Being able to come and gather together in the freedom that we experience here in the United States, it's been wonderful. But would it surprise you to know that the fastest growing church in the world isn't in the United States? It's not in North America. It's not in South America. It's not even in Africa. It's in Iran. They don't have structures like this in Iran. They meet from house to house, worshiping God together. So I would just submit that if we're struggling because of COVID and we feel like we've missed something because we're not in this space together, I love it that, that you all are gathered at home. I love it that we're gathered here. I love it that we can gather together and, and, and literally rub elbows with each other. But if we feel as if we're missing our worship experience because we aren't in this space together, I would suggest that you are worshiping a structure and not God. So as we walk this journey of faith, we will encounter people much like this beggar in chapter 3. And I want to take us back there for just a second. Because if we, in this passage, we see that Peter and John started with a very basic need that we all have. And sometimes we lose it as we mature in Jesus, ironically. Every person that we lock eyes with has intrinsic value. They have intrinsic value. Whether they're able-bodied or not. We each, all of us, are the image bearers of God. And that's our starting point as Christ followers. If we cannot see the other as an image bearer, then we're, we're never going to actually demonstrate our faith to other people. As we walk this journey of faith, we are going to encounter beggars along the way. They might be the literal beggar, but they might even be something that, that maybe they look different than you. Maybe they talk different than you. Maybe they attend from some foreign country up at Juniata. Do you view them as somehow less than? I don't know. Maybe that beggar is you. It was me 22 years ago. I remember sitting at a different gate called Beautiful, First Baptist Church in Minot, North Dakota, knowing that I was a sinner. I mean, there was no question in my mind. And... Jesus said, look at me. So what about you? What's your condition? Are you a beggar? 
Are you like the beggar? Do you feel the full weight of the sin in your life? Are you like a broken piece of clay sitting in a, in a, in a pit of despair? Can I just tell you that you who feel hopeless, there is hope. It just takes a moment to experience that hope. Will you reach out and take the hand of the Savior? And this goes for you who have been Christ followers your whole life as well as those who are new to it. Why would you want to walk this journey of faith divorced from Jesus? How about the rest of us? Will we continue to ignore the beggars at the gate called beautiful? Again, as we begin to become mobilized, as we become to, to expect Jesus to show up, as we expect to engage with Jesus as he navigates his kingdom, as he proclaims and, and pushes his kingdom forward, our, as we partner with him, as our ministries become more mobilized, decentralized from this gathering space here, as they're pushed out into the community, there's going to be um, opportunity after opportunity to see beggars sitting at the gate called Beautiful. I mean, they may not be broken in body. They, they'll probably be broken in spirit. But they might, they might look like a banker who's feeling financial pressures. It might be a waitress working three jobs to, just to make ends meet. It might be a college professor, a university student, a high school janitor. It might be a police officer, a fireman. It might be a homeless drug addict. Might even be a white-collar drug addict. So what are some things that might help us become more attuned to the beggars at the gate? Number one, let's do this together. Let's repent of our hard-heartedness towards them. Repent of that. I think you got to know in your spirit that being hard-hearted towards the beggar sitting at the gate called beautiful is actually a sin. And it's wicked. Number two, pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities to see the beggar sitting at the gate called beautiful. Number three, hold out an open hand. No, a number of years ago, I used to do karate. And uh, the, the guy that was in charge of that organization of, uh, of karate, um, he was fond of saying this. He said, don't walk around with a clenched fist because you can't help somebody up. Don't clench your fist at somebody who's sitting at the gate called beautiful. Number four, and this is so important, bring them with you to Jesus. Bring them with you. Bring them along. In a lot of ways, you kind of have a real little responsibility to maybe this newfound Christian who is a babe in Christ. I mean, you, you don't just abandon your child that your wife or you gave birth to, do you? You don't just expect them to learn how to to feed themselves, wash themselves, clean themselves, dress themselves, cook for themselves. I mean, criminy, they're days old. You just wouldn't do that. So bring them with you. And I think that if we can do this, that not only are we going to bless that person, that beggar sitting at the gate called beautiful, but you will experience the blessing. I got a picture of Peter and John walking in and just beaming ear to ear. But then also I know that Peter had to sit down and, and deliver a sermon that was hard for those that were there to hear. Men of Israel, hear my words. Amen? Will you pray with me? Jesus, uh, may we have eyes to see people as you see them. 
the people that we would normally just pass by, the ones that we don't always agree with, the ones that maybe have a different political perspective than us, may we just lean in and extend a hand. May we be people who would bridge that gap from, from the wicked to you. May we be a part of that journey. We know that we don't save anybody. That's not our role. That's not our responsibility. That's completely up to you. But you've told us to go and make disciples wherever we find ourselves. And it seems to me that uh, sometimes when we find ourselves uh, um, at the end of a, an off-ramp at a stoplight and we see that person who's a homeless beggar, what are we going to do? My prayer is that you would soften our hearts, that we would actually see that person as a human being. Maybe we don't have coin to offer. Maybe we, gold or silver we don't have. But maybe we have a, a sandwich. Maybe we have a cup of cold water. A kind word. Just even a conversation. May we be people who are bridging the gap between here and you. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen.
everybody who matters to God. John 3.16 says,